Well, we've come to John chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible with you, uh, we'll be in John chapter 6. If you don't have it, I'll have it on the screen and I'll be walking through the chapter a little bit. It'll be a little different approach than we normally have where we read a big piece of scripture and then we, we talk about it. We're going to step through this one a piece at a time. And uh, we're not going to get all the way through the chapter. We're going to have to break this one into two parts because indeed there's a lot of content here and it is very critical for understanding John's gospel. So we have a great opportunity uh, in front of us here to learn from this profound and deep teaching that is found in John chapter 6. This is part of the series. We've returned now to the series. We took a break for the holidays to explore some of our favorite uh, birth narratives of Christ and now we're, we come back into our series uh, going through the book of John, a series that's called Believe and Live, and it's based upon John's stated purpose of his gospel, which is to present the Lord Jesus Christ in hopes that we would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. And so far we've looked at many things that John has called the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the gospel, that he's the light, that he's the only uh, son of God, that he is the logos or the pre-existent word, that he's the lamb of God, the Christ, that he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, that he's a giver of signs, that he is uh, the temple, that he is a rabbi, that he is the savior of the world, the son of man, the son of God. Today we come to John chapter 6 and we see that he is the true bread from heaven. This is, contains one of his very famous I am statements of the book of John, in which he says, I am the bread of life. And so here in John chapter 6, we're relying on our understanding of something that happens in Exodus chapter 16. So I've given you the cross-reference there in your notes that you may go and you may read that, but that's when the Lord fed the people of Israel in the wilderness. And what we're going to see and learn today is simply this, that Jesus constantly presents himself as the essential and unfailing giver of life. So he's literally going to give life through feeding 5,000 people here at the beginning of the chapter. We'll read the first 15 verses. And then Jesus is going to use that miracle to teach spiritual truths about himself as the true bread from God. And along the way, he's going to compare himself then to the manna that was given for the people of Israel in the wilderness. So as we read, I want you to note the parallels. I want you to notice how Jesus has led these people into the wilderness as the Lord had led the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness. They've been following him for some time. They become hungry. He miraculously provides them food. And then just like the Israelites in the wilderness of the Old Testament, there's some murmuring, some grumbling among the people, just like there was back there in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. And so look for those similarities, and then we'll look at these first 15 verses, and then we'll proceed to skip some and, and work through a few verses at a time later in the chapter. But here's what we have there. Get the scriptures up there for you. Okay, so John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the first thing we want to recognize and want to remind ourselves as we read the scriptures here is the purpose of the signs that Jesus gave. And we see the purpose according to John as he defines his purpose toward the end of the book. These were given that people might believe. And the word sign appears in this passage four times. And in all four Gospels, this occurrence of the miraculous feeding of 5,000 people is mentioned. But John's the only one who continues into a discourse in which he compares himself to the man in, in the wilderness, which we'll, we'll skip down to in a little bit. But I want you to look here at verse 15. I want you to think about this. In verse 15, Jesus perceives that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so this is a principle. Jesus knew the hearts of men. He also perfectly knew human nature. And he understand, as we're about to be reminded in an election year, that you know the people that promise the most and provide some, them some sustenance to the people is going to be popular when it comes time to vote. And so we see that is a working principle nearly 2,000 years ago, that Jesus realizes, well, I fed the people, now they're going to want to make me king. But that's not how he's going to be king. Jesus is king. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords, but it is not going to be brought about for people's political reasons. And so it goes on. As the narrative goes on, in verses 16 through 21, we see this. We see a storm opposes the disciples trying to cross back across the sea. The, the Lord puts them on the boat, says, you go on and get out of here because probably he's protecting them from this danger of the people who are going to try to use them for some kind of political coup or something. And then in verses 22 to 24, we see that the people followed them all the way around the sea and found him again in Capernaum on the other side of the sea. And so having fed them and, and the overnight going back across the sea, uh, 
they follow. They find him seemingly the next day or maybe two days later. But let's skip down to verse 25. And we're going to get into when Jesus starts to talk about being the bread of life. And Jesus begins with a challenge. When they found him on the other side of the sea, in verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He gives them a challenge right off the bat, questions their intentions. And he goes on. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus encourages them to think beyond their stomachs and to point them to what it is that they truly needed. It maybe wasn't what they necessarily wanted on a day-to-day basis because we're so blinded by our immediate cravings and desires and our immediate needs that we don't often see the long term. And Jesus is talking about the ultimate long term. And this gives us a great principle here right off the bat. And what I've done in your notes is I've broken things down into slices. Yes, the pun's intended. And so I realize putting, putting pictures of bread up here in my presentation is a risk. <laughs> I might distract you from the, the true food that comes from heaven that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he, uh, he brings out here in this teaching, and there's so much to learn in chapter 6. I've broken it down into slices for you. And slice number one is this. Do not follow Jesus merely for the temporal benefits but for the eternal benefits. There are many benefits to following the Lord Jesus Christ, but what we find in experience and what we find according to the Word of God is those people that follow Him solely for the short-term gain, gain, you know, totally for just some help here in the here and now, they generally miss the big point. And that's the eternal point. That is that He gives eternal life. And it's interesting, he brings up the concept of works. He says, do not work for the food that perishes. And this must get the crowd thinking about works, because in verse 28, they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus gives an answer. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom they have sent. And this brings us slice number two, a principle of truth from the Bible is that salvation is not by the works of the flesh, but by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is this is what brings us into eternal life. It is not the work of our hands. It's not something we do. Now, the work of our hands and the works that we do and things like that are often signs that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, much as running out of a building is a sign that you believe the building to be a danger. You believe the building to be on fire. And so those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ generally do the works that are appropriate to following the Lord Jesus Christ. But this shows Jesus knows our religious tendencies. 
And John, in writing his gospel, he works very hard to make sure his readers know that salvation is about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul keys into this too. If we look in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 here, he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. He says as to a church. And he says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so faith, which is the same word as believing in the scriptures, is the key. But Paul also connects it to works and he puts them in their proper order. We are his workmanship, a play on the word work, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul gets that straight. He says it's about the faith. That's how you've been saved, but you were saved to good works. So it's interesting, John uh, 6.30 here, as we go back over here, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may say and believe you? What work do you perform? So they say, what works should we be doing? He says, the work that you should be doing is to believe. And they say, well, okay, well, what sign are you going to work so that we can believe? And so it's this interplay of the words work and believe all through the passage here. And Jesus says, um, well, then they bring up the man in the wilderness. I'll get to that in a moment. But isn't it interesting? They ask, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Why is that ironic? John chapter 6, verse 30. Because in John chapter 6, the first 15 verses, he feeds a multitude of with a few loaves and a few fish. And they were there. That's why they followed him around the sea. That's why they found him. And he challenges them. You're just following me because you ate. See, they understood that he fed them, but they missed the big point. They missed the big thing that, well, this guy, if he can feed us, then, and, and miraculously like this, so many of us that 200 denarii, which is 200 days worth of wages, couldn't have fed us, then he might be from God. And if he's from God, then they're asking all the wrong questions. So they ask what sign, and then they bring up the manna in the wilderness. And usually I... I in the past, I've read John chapter 6, I've studied John chapter 6, but it wasn't until this time that it really hit me that Jesus isn't the one that actually brings up the word manna. They do. They made the connection. They saw the parallels. Oh, we were in the wilderness. We were hungry. This guy fed us. That's kind of like that story from the Old Testament in which the Lord had the people of Israel out in the wilderness and he fed them. So then they, they bring it up and they say to him, Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so they ask him, well, what sign, what work are you going to do? And then I think somebody here began to reason it out, began to realize he fed us. Jesus then said to them, 
Now, you'll notice something in the Gospels. Jesus is a good teacher. And I once had a professor in college who's teaching us advanced mathematics. And he was actually teaching us principles of heat transfer and things like that. But all those things are really just lots of math, lots of really intense math. And he said, my goal is to always keep you in the fog. And I'm like, well, that's not very kind. He goes, no, no, no. Because as things start to clear, you know, you'll get complacent. You won't move forward. You won't engage the material. He's like, I always have to keep just ahead of you. Jesus does the same thing. He employs the same principle that right when someone seems to get it, right when they begin to make the connection, well, what sign are you going to do? Oh, wait a minute. Ah, yeah, our forefathers, they had the man in the wilderness. They start to make the connection. Well, look what he does. And he steps it up a notch. And he's going to challenge him a little more. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he says, yeah, the true bread, that that was but showing something that would come later. This whole man in the wilderness thing was talking about something yet future. The true bread of God, he comes down from heaven and he gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus comes back, I am the bread of life. And in doing so, and by saying it in this way, Jesus is provocatively giving to them more because when he says i am he says it in such a way in the greek that it parallels the way god introduced himself to moses at the burning bush you see they're talking about moses they're talking about the wilderness jesus comes along and he says ego in me which is how god introduced himself according to their greek translation at the burning bush i am the bread of life Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Well, we need to catch up on our slices here a little bit. The, the signs Jesus performed were designed to in, inspire faith and everything. And Jesus then, he begins to elevate himself above Moses. And this is no small thing. This is profoundly interesting what he does here. He elevates himself above Moses. By reminding the crowd, well, first of all, it wasn't Moses who gave you that. It was God who provided the manna. And then secondly, then he attributes to himself this phrase, I am, as it was given to Moses. And so Jesus just elevated himself above Moses. And if you were to ask the ancient Jews 2,000 years ago, Who's the greatest person that ever lived? There'd be a little debate. Some would say, oh, David was, you know, Samuel was, nothing ever bad was said about Samuel. And they might mention the prophets, but eventually they usually came around, no, it was Moses. Clearly, it was Moses. He was the greatest figure of their history. And he just comes and elevates himself above Moses. And he says, I'm, I'm the bush compared to Moses. I'm the one who's been sent by God. So they decide that. They decide, yeah, you know, why don't you give us this bread? And he says, I am the bread of life. And he's going to go on. Let's read how he goes on. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So our next major slice of bread is simply this, that Jesus claims, as it were, he claims that as the bread of life, he will give eternal life and resurrection to all those that the Father gives to him. Now there's this distinction, and he repeats himself. So he mentions resurrection here twice with raising people up. To go back to the scriptures and to see this is important for us to see this. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Because many people in those days and many people now, they have this idea, oh yeah, we're eternal beings. You know, when, when we pass away, our, our spirit lives on and it goes and it floats through the never-never and just, you know, and, and they have all these different conceptions of heaven or nirvana or whatever it is that they have in their traditions whatever it is that they've created in their mind or, or heard from someone that calls themselves an expert, they have this understanding that a human being is more than simply stuff, material stuff. It consists of some spiritual stuff. But Jesus comes and he makes it plain, yeah, you're eternal, I give eternal life, but not just any eternal life, eternal life that will be lived out in a body. Not floating about the universe in some kind of mindless, numb state, but a real, tangible, human, perfected body. And this is the will of the Father, that all those who believe in him will go down this road to have this eternal physical existence. So the Jews grumbled, verses 41 and 42. The Jews grumbled because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And this is where the parallel continues with the wilderness because many of the things God did for them in the wilderness eventually led to grumbling or murmuring among the people. God fed them manna in the wilderness where there's, there's not a bush to, to give you a berry. There's hardly any life worth eating. Most of the things that were there in the desert that could physically be eaten were banned from the law by God to eat. So that he rains down food from heaven is a miraculous and incredible thing. But nonetheless, after having that food for a while, they're like, is this all you got? We're tired of this manna, this stuff, which the word literally means what it is or what is it. 
Because when they first saw it, they're like, what is that? That became the word. It's manna. And so they get that, and then they begin to grumble about it. Well, they see Jesus miraculously feed all these people. They hear Jesus explain that this is to show you, just like God fed our ancestors in the wilderness, God now has sent me to come down and give life to all those who will believe in me. And what's humans, what do humans do by their nature? Well, I don't know about that. I love it when sharing the gospel with someone who hasn't spent so much as an hour in the Word of God and reading the Bible, all of a sudden have all these opinions about it. And you say, well, I've, you know, have you learned about Jesus Christ? Well, I heard those things are handed down, you know, and there's errors in the Bible. And I, Oh, okay, would you show me one? Would you point one out? And they're never equipped to. They simply want to grumble. Why? Because they don't want Jesus over them. Not really. See, when he fed them, they were ready to make him king, but now it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, this guy's saying he's the key to eternal life and resurrection and all that. I, I don't know about this. And then they go on. Verse 42, is this, is not this Jesus? the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I come down from heaven? See, they recognize Jesus was claiming to have come from heaven. They recognize he was claiming some divinity by saying, I am, suggesting that he was what the, the one who spoke from the burning bush. But then they begin to think, no, 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 we know his, we know his mother and father. He's from He's from Galilee. You know, he's a local. He can't have come down from heaven. See, they didn't have any way to understand the incarnation, as we call it, meaning literally in the flesh, becoming in the flesh. They had no category for that. You search through the Old Testament and you find out there are those who are people, there are those who are heavenly beings. And sometimes the heavenly beings, they come down from heaven and visit the people. The people are born of men and women, and they grow up like the rest of them. There were a couple of occasions where some of the people went up to heaven. But there was never this occasion where someone claimed to be from heaven, having come from people. So we can understand their confusion. We understand they don't have a category this that this person born of a woman was actually from heaven and just last week I had the Jehovah's Witnesses stop by the house which is always amazing to me because our church sign is literally in our yard and they're so bold and I wish we were half as bold they're so bold as to knock on the door of the preacher to share their so-called gospel and this is the same problem they have. They don't have a category for understanding the incarnation. They believe Jesus to be a created being. And they say, yeah, well, he was the first thing God ever made. And you can argue with them and you can go round and round. But at some point they're going to grumble. Because they don't have a category for this.
What do you do if somebody presents you with a piece of information which you have no way to process, you know, no way to process, no way to categorize? The right thing to do is to hang around that person long enough to form a new category, to see what it is they're really talking about, in order that you might be able to reconcile this new information with everything else you know. And that's what chapter 6 is really all about. Chapter 6 has all this profound teaching about Jesus being the bread of life. He, he is the giver of life. It has all this profound teaching uh, about him taking care to raise up every single one that the Father gets him, that no one ever comes to him and then goes away from him. That his job, assigned by the Father, is to take those that the Father gives and make sure they get to eternal life and they're raised up in the last day. And all this profound teaching is here in chapter 6, but what chapter 6 is really about is this, that Jesus presents himself and there are one of two reactions. People walk away grumbling or people stick around to try to figure it out. Jesus is the great exception to all the categories that they had at the time. He came from heaven and yet was born to a woman. But this chapter is really a revelation of how God sorts people out. One kind of person is mentioned here in verses 41 and 42. Oh, how can he say he came down from heaven? We know his parents. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit in our world. So they grumble. But look, as Jesus teaches more, he's going to talk about the fact that the bread that he gives is his flesh. Well, that leads to more misunderstanding, where in verse 52, then after he says this, they dispute among themselves. So this is another category of people. There are those who just grumble about it. There are those who are actually going to argue with each other over it. And they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because as you know, it didn't even need to be stated in the law of God that you don't eat people. It's just that plain. So here come the ones that dispute. And it's because they're taking what he says literally. And this is almost a theme in John, because here we have in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking of his body. He was speaking figuratively. They took it literally. And you say, well, that's really obvious. Well, because we have the rest of the New Testament to understand it. We also have John's commentary on the fact. But this is a tendency of people today to take too literally some of the things he says. They miss the point by getting hung up on the illustration that he's using. It happens again in chapter 3 when he has this conversation with Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? But the difference with Nicodemus is Nicodemus stays there, with him, keeps listening. He asks the question, and then he shuts up, and he receives the answer from Jesus. And Nicodemus eventually comes to faith. And then in chapter 4, there's a misunderstanding with the woman at the well, where he talks about himself as living water, and she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
And so it happens again here in John chapter 6 where he talks about himself as the bread of the life. And I, the bread I give is, the, is my very own flesh. And they're like, now wait a minute. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus goes on. And he doubles down on his teaching in verses 53 through 59. And he begins by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, which that truly, truly is verily, verily, which is like, amen, amen. In other words, so let it be. And when he repeats it, he's, he's being emphatic. He's saying, I'm telling you the truth. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he goes on all the way through verse 59. And in 59, reveals that he had said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. But then in verse 60, we see when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So you have another category of people here. It's like, I don't know about this. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. So he's saying, you know, what if you saw some more? Do you understand what he's doing there? It's an invitation that he's giving to stick around. What if you see something more? What if you see something more fantastic than this this fantastic feeding of 5,000 people. What if you stick around you actually see him ascend to heaven? Very few people saw Jesus ascend. 500 at the most saw Jesus ascend into heaven. At this point, thousands were following. And Jesus, in this chapter, breaks all the rules of church building and church planting that you'll ever hear because he runs off the vast majority of the people following him. That's something really to think about. When you think about the nature of the man, when you think about uh, nature of mankind, when you think about the teaching of Jesus in which he said, narrow is the way that leads to heaven, wide is the way that leads to destruction. When you think about the sayings that he has, like many are called, but few are chosen. And you see in John chapter 6 here, as he begins to reveal more and more about himself, that more and more people turn away. A lot to think about here and a lot to process. But Jesus double down, doubles down on his teaching that he you know, that, that it's necessary for someone to eat his flesh, drink his blood, which he says very plainly he's not being literal. Doesn't mean the Eucharist, and we'll talk about that next week. It doesn't mean that there's transubstantiation where the blood and the, and the, the wine actually literally turn into his, blood, his body and his blood. No, he's not being literal here. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about a wholehearted acceptance of everything that he is. And to the Jew who was given in the very laws of God, rules about what you could legitimately take into your body and not. This meant something. That you have to take every bit of 
and you've got a rule not to eat anything with the blood in it. No, I tell you, when it comes to me, it's body and blood. It's the whole deal. And the implication is, or it's none of me. So he kind of sneaks out this invitation there. What if you saw something more? And he goes in verse 63, he says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And look at verse 66 here. John 666, as many people like to point out. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go as well? I'm letting it be silent for a minute. Because when he asked that question, I tend to think it was maybe silent for a minute. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And slice number six of our bread today is this when the teachings of Jesus become hard to understand it is an invitation to draw closer to him to learn more from him he keeps us on the edge he keeps us where we're just barely understanding the gospel truth and he pulls us further in so that we, we are confused again and we're like, oh, I just don't understand. But if we stay faithful and we stay there and we try to draw closer and understand, and we try to learn and we wrestle with the word of God, he rewards it with further revelation of himself. This, I believe, to be the real fundamental point of John chapter 6. To sum up what we've learned and, and how we can be encouraged I present these before you here. Now, first of all is this. Jesus is the only source of life. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, and, and seek to understand his teaching. And when the occasion comes that you struggle in your faith, stay close to Jesus, his word, and his church while you try to understand. I've met many of people who were attending church and they, they were having difficulty with some of the teaching, they were having trouble understanding, and they stopped going. When it's very clear, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, and they walk away from him. That's the worst thing we could do. We have to stay close to Jesus, close to his word, searching his word, and fellowshipping with his people, the church. 
Do not ask Google and do not ask non-church attenders what things concerning Jesus mean. Ask your brothers and sisters in your local congregation to whom you are accountable and they accountable to, for you to God. That's the reasonable way to go forward. And the promise of Jesus is this, that those who seek find that to him who knocks, he will have it open to him. And I believe that to be some of the most fundamental, so some of the most important promises of God in all of Scripture is that if you will seek, you will find. And if you will knock, it will be opened. And the question we have for ourselves today is this, will we seek to understand Jesus or will we walk away? Will we give up? Now make sure to tune in next time as we tackle some of the difficult questions that this passage often raises. But now let us close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you. We praise you for bringing us together. And this teaching, Lord, this chapter, I pray that each of us have the faith to pick up your word this week and read this over and over in review of what we've learned and in anticipation for more that we will learn on this chapter next week, Lord, I pray that you'll make yourself known through it. I pray that you'll reward those who seek by their finding. Those who knock, that you'll give them an open door. Lord, you are so good as to do these things. And you are so wise as to separate, so wise as to challenge people to the point where they might walk away. But Lord, you show who your faithful are because they stay close and you draw them near and they learn and they grow and they change. And none of this is by our own strength or our own doing or even our own wills, but by your great grace that you have called to yourself a people that you seek to glorify, that you bring close to know you and through whom the world receives the true word of God that many may be saved. I pray, Lord, that you'll complete our understanding of these scriptures, that you'll draw us close and keep us faithful. We praise you and thank you for your ministry among the saints. In Jesus' name, amen.